Welcome to the Gnomecast, Gnome Stew's tabletop gaming advice podcast. Here we talk with the other gnomes about gaming things to avoid becoming part of the stew, so I guess we'd better be good. This episode is brought to you by awesome Patreon backers like the Brazen Block Party Bo- Podcast Network, the dependable Doug Roz, and the bodacious Bob Quack. Today we have myself, Ange, along with JT and Lori, and today's episode is going to be JT and I answering questions for Lori as she dives into running a campaign for the first time. Before we dive into that main topic, though, we're going to ask our get to know a gnome question. So tell us what you remember about the very first RPG session you played. JT, I'm going to start with you. All right. This is the way, way, way back machine (laughs) for me. Uh, It's got to be with my fellow Cub Scouts. So it gives you the kind of the age range there. Uh, We were at Mark's house gaming in his bedroom, and I can still see that room in every detail because we spent a lot of time in there playing D&D, just sitting on the floor, maps and dice and pencils and all sorts of good stuff just scattered about. Um, I had received the Mincer Redbox set before everybody else by like weeks before everybody else, so I was quote-unquote the most experienced D&D player <laughs> in the group, which made me the game master. So... I had no clue what I was doing. I'd run the little solo adventure that came in the, the box set and the basic box set. I uh, had a blast with it, obviously, because I'm still role-playing today. So I had Mark, JP, and Chris roll up some uh, D&D characters while I scribbled out a maze. I don't even know what characters they made. There was no Session Zero. That didn't exist back then. <laughs> they just ran off and made their own thing. I was like, okay, you guys are at the opening of a maze. Go in. And it was random rooms, random monsters, no concern for power balance or fairness in the encounters. I didn't even have treasure prepared. When they killed something, I'd look up the treasure type, go hit the table, roll the treasure on the fly. Whatever the dice told me to give them, I gave them. (laughs) You know, like I said, no power balance or fairness. I think somebody landed uh, like a flaming sword at second level or something. It was kind of gonzo. (laughs) But of course, we were 10 years old, and this was 1983, and that was pretty normal for back then. I am so glad things have evolved to improve into more kind of storytelling and rich stories uh, that that we do these days. So that's kind of my first experience that I remember playing a game was me as Game Master uh, going through a maze. How about you, Lori? What's your first uh, memory of of playing a role-playing game? I'm going way back. Like you. So I remember it was D&D, the first edition. It was in the 80s, and I played with a friend at the lake. It was just two of us for some reason. And I remember rolling a lot of dice. I remember a really creepy spider demon queen. I don't know if that's Lolf off the top of my head. Yep. I mean, she is thus creepy spider demon queen, so... Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, who knows what your GM put in it way back when. That's true. That's yep. true. And also, too, it was very mechanical, almost like if you coughed the wrong way or you stepped the wrong way, you kind of fell to your death. I remember that. <laughs> I remember a lot of math. I remember alignments. And I remember, of course, like the skills of strength, intelligence, wisdom, dexterity, constitution, charisma. And I, I remember the kind of the races were very limited. And it's neat looking back on it now, like how much more storytelling and narrative driven it is. And it was very mechanical. That's just kind of what I remember. Lots of math, lots of dice rolls. My very first session was also in the 80s, although I was a senior in high school. So we're looking at like 86 time frame here. I've I've told this story many times before. So longtime listeners will probably heard parts of this. (laughs) We had a new kid come into school got invited to sit at our table by one of my mutual friends. He saw me reading a big fat fantasy novel with a dragon on the cover. And on that very first day of us meeting and talking during lunch, he's like, 
do you play D&D? And I'm like, no. He's like, do you want to? And I'm like, yes. And so I ended up uh, Saturday or two later after that at his house with a whole bunch of other people I didn't know. And I was handed somebody else's character because they didn't show up for that session. And it was easier to have me play that character rather than make my own. And I don't remember what that character's name was, but it, it was a halfling thief. I'm like looking at this character sheet and I have absolutely no idea what any of this means. But <laughs> there was a point where it was like, okay, you guys are looking around and exploring and what do you do? And I'm like, this says I can climb walls. And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, I climb the wall and I roll the percentile dice to do the rogue things. And I climb the wall and they're like, okay, now what? And I'm like, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm a small halfling man with a dagger and I can climb the walls. I feel very overwhelmed here. Things progressed. We ended up going down a level in this dungeon. I don't remember anything about it other than we ended up in this room that was like charnel room with dead bodies and all of this. And we got overwhelmed by a whole bunch of orcs. And it ended up being a TPK that I kind of sort of survived because when they asked me what I did, I'm like, I'm going to hide under all of the bodies. There you go. That's a good move. This seems like the logical choice in this situation, but we never really resolved how my character would have gotten out of there. Everyone was dead for that one. So it was like, okay, everyone's making new characters, at which point they walked me through making a character of my own. But that very first session, first character ever played was a halfling thief who may or may not have died with the rest of the party. It's never been really established. <laughs> so getting into the main topic for today, uh, Lori is going to lead us off since she's taking charge and asking us questions. Take it away, Lori. Thank you so much. I thought as a New Year's resolution, I wanted to launch a campaign or at least a play like maybe four or five sessions. And I hadn't played since high school. So it's been decades. You play regularly, but you haven't run regularly. Yeah, I haven't really uh, taken the plunge to be behind the, the shields there. The <laughs> What do you call it? <laughs> the DM screen. Thank you, the DM screen. See, I don't even know that yet. That's the first thing I know. <laughs> and just wondering if you could help me, other newbies out there, with launching a new campaign. So I guess I'm a returning DM, but I haven't played, I haven't ran in so long. I'm like a new DM. I think it's okay to label yourself as a novice GM. Okay. Yeah. I like that. Well, we all had to start somewhere, right? I mean, no, nobody was spawned into this world as an expert GM or an expert anything, really. I mean, there's there's some folks like JT who was like just fell into it because he was the first one who got the box and was therefore the expert. But nobody comes into this fully knowing what they're doing. You, you got to start somewhere. Right, right. Yeah, it's good to know. Thank you for the encouragement. I will need that. <laughs> so I guess my first question is, why did you decide to run a campaign and what is are your purpose or purposes? Well, for me, I have chosen to run campaigns because my group swaps GMing responsibilities. We take turns running. So no one, no one is the forever GM. No one is forced to always be the one running a game. It's just this works better for my group because we all have different responsibilities and other things. And I choose to run a campaign because I can and I can offer my ideas to my players, to my group, and then we take turns. So it's like the purpose is to share the responsibility of running 
So nobody is overburdened, but also so I get a chance to play with my ideas and my creativity as a GM. What's your thoughts, JT? Uh, yeah, very similar, actually. Uh, my group, uh, we have two people that don't run games for us because they just don't want to, which is awesome. That's cool. They just want to be players, which is cool with us because every game master needs a handful of players, right? But we have one, two, three, four. In my group, four of us will rotate game master responsibilities. One guy runs fairly short storylines. He has like a beginning, middle, end that's going to last, I don't know, four to six sessions and he's done. The other three of us like the longer campaigns in that, you know, hey, we'll run a campaign for a year if it has enough meat on the bones to do that. When I go about starting my campaign ideas, I kind of approach it like I do my novels from the planning perspective, not the execution perspective, right? Because in a novel, I'm in full control of everything that happens. In a role-playing campaign, kind of the opposite is true. I'm 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 in control of very little of what happens. <laughs> but as far as the planning goes, I know my opening scene and I know what the ending scene is going to be as far as like the penultimate battle against the big bad evil guy. In the middle bits, I kind of figure out on the fly with a few nudges here and there with hints, clues, notes, uh, mysteries that lead towards that penultimate battle. You know, I don't, I don't lead the players by the nose, but I do give them the breadcrumbs to follow if they choose to do so. So that, that's kind of how I do my campaigns is, is where are we starting? Where are we finishing? And then the rest is fill out the middle in a collaborative manner. I will usually have an idea, a framework for what I want the campaign to be. For example, uh, my first Eberron campaign, kind of the framework I gave the players was you can play whatever class, race, combo you want, but you had to have chosen to fight for Brayland during the Hundred Years' War, and you willingly served as part of the Red Gauntlet's mercenary company. As long as those two things aligned, good. So basically that was able to establish why these characters knew each other at the start of the campaign and why they were working together right out of the gate. With my current Eberron campaign, it was the requirement was they had to have answered kind of an open call for adventurers to join an expedition to the continent of Zendrick. So it's like, whatever else you want to play, but you want to be here and do this. With other genres, uh, it's a little more like, it's a little different. Like um, when I ran an East Texas University Savage Worlds campaign, it was like, you are a college freshman. You have, for whatever reason, are starting out at East Texas University. Whatever character you make here, we go from here. I usually come up with the framework of the campaign I want to run and then give the players kind of that ballpark of what characters they make for that that campaign. Now, as I say, I do the same, and that's all session zero material. Mm -hmm. That's what I prep and show up with. Honestly, I kind of feed this to my players because we use Discord to do between game management and communication. But I, I'll type up a very brief Word doc, uh, no more than two pages, because honestly, people don't read yeah. more than that. Deliver that to my players three to four days, if not more, prior to session zero so they can read, ingest, and show up with their ideas of their own. So I'm not just hitting them cold. Mm -hmm. that, way, that way they have a bit of chance to warm up their creative juices and get in alignment with the style, theme, tone, background of the game that we're about to play. Yeah. So basically it's sounding like kind of a parameters, kind of a storyline, parameters, of kind of like establish it early so the expectations are clear. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. that's absolutely important. Like JT mentioned in his little um, answer to our intro question, you know, he had no idea what his players were making. And back in the day, I think it was it was very much considered almost um, uh, uncouth for a GM to tell their players what type of character they were allowed to make or not allowed to make. Oh, yeah. 
the players can play whatever they want. Well, if you're going to be running a city campaign where they're going into the sewers a lot and dealing with politics, that nature-loving druid is really not going to be happy in this campaign. <laughs> That's true. Right? <laughs> you may want to send some guidelines for your players so they know what type of character is actually going to thrive in the campaign you want to run. I mean, it's totally okay to just say, make whatever you want, but then you have to deal with what happens when you have players who make completely diametrically opposed characters. Yeah, things have shifted from, you can't tell me what kind of play, uh, character to make because it's my character. That, that That's old school thinking from way back in the day, decades ago, to more modern thinking is... We are going to tell a story together. How can I best enable that storytelling? And yeah, there's still some players out there that are like, you can't tell me what kind of character to play because it's my character. <laughs> and quite frankly, those players are not allowed at my table. Yeah, yeah. I'm very much of the opinion, like if, it, if we reach a situation where a player is like, my character wouldn't go along with this mission, but everyone else is on board. I'm like, okay, that's great. Your character can totally choose to not go. Do you want to make a new character that actually does want to go? Right. Otherwise, I mean, I like you, but you can leave now. Yep. Like I have gotten to the point where if I have prepared a session and my players deliberately choose to not engage with what I have brought to the table, I'm like, okay, that's fine. But we're done now. The session <laughs> is over because I don't have anything else planned. <laughs> yeah. Yep. There's definitely a balance to giving your players agency, freedom, and creativity but also respecting the work that the GM does. Because of time and energy too, really there's not really room for kind of like diva gaming behaviors. I mean, there really just isn't. No. And the older I get, the more I realize how time is precious. And yep. it's a big chunk of time and energy. You want to move on to your next question? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Okay, question. Which RPG system do you use, including the version? And would that be a good one for a new DM? Why or why not? In my group, the system of the campaign changes almost every campaign. So we're, we're, we're all over the place, scattered across a wide variety of different systems. But for a new game master, I would highly recommend 5th edition D&D. The rules have been streamlined as compared to previous editions. It's much easier, much simpler. Everything makes sense more so than previous editions. So I'd go D&D 5. I don't remember if it was Senda or Phil or somebody else who coined the term. <sighs> But I think you can say JT and I are both what you would call polygamerous. <laughs> yep. We are not beholden to a single system. Okay. I have run campaigns in Savage Worlds, Uncharted Worlds, Monster of the Week, Pathfinder, D&D 3.5, D&D 5.0, all of them. Yeah. I would say for a new GM, if there is a system you are comfortable playing... That is probably a, a, a you are comfortable playing, you enjoy playing, and it supports a genre that you want to run. That is probably a really good system to explore. More specifically, I will echo JT and say that D&D 5.0 is a really good system to start with. And they have a couple of excellent starter sets. <laughs> I want to say the Essentials Kit, which came out a two or three years ago. It has the adventure in it called The Dragons of Icefire Peak, and that is a fantastic set to walk somebody through figuring out how to GM. And the framework of the campaign is actually a really good one for new GM, new players. I've actually been using it with the teenagers I run D&D for, and I highly recommend it to anyone who's like looking to get started 
running, but there are also a ton of resources. And as long as you've got the player's handbook, you're probably good to go with 5e. Yeah, I, I am thinking I probably would go with D&D 5e uh, &D &E because that's what I'm familiar with. That's what I've played with for the last couple years. And it's good to know that there's kind of a, a GMing for dummies out there, like the resources. <laughs> and <laughs> Yeah, the starter kit is really good and the essentials kit is even better. I want to say there's also a new starter kit they've come out with, but I haven't really had a chance to look at it or explore it. I just think I saw it in advertisements recently. But it's another box set with everything you need to get started inside of it. Right. That's awesome. Thank you. That's really, really helpful. So this is kind of like, how often do you play? Do you play weekly, bi-weekly, monthly, bi-monthly, once a year, once a decade? Well, for me, it depends on the group. I am in a couple of games that are ostensibly every other week. Every other week seems to be the standard, okay. um, at least as an adult. When I was a kid, we'd play a couple of times a week. I don't know how we manage that, but, <laughs> you know, time. as an adult, every other, every other week works good for different games. I will say that I play every Saturday, but it's two separate groups that alternate Saturdays. Gotcha. I am currently running my new Eberron campaign on one of the, those alternating groups. Mostly, I'm going to say every other week, but I will say that I have had other groups where we will play monthly or quarterly whenever that group can arrange time to get together. It's all ultimately it's something you work out with your group. What's going to what cadence of gaming is going to work for you? What do you end up doing, JT? So in my uh, earlier days, like when I was post high school, uh, we were playing twice a day. We'd have our <laughs> afternoon game and our <laughs> evening into late night game. And sometimes it would be the same game, just like a really, really, really long session. But usually we'd break it up and I would run for three, four, five hours in the afternoon. And then one of my roommates would pick up his can one of his campaigns. We actually had a spreadsheet to track game, game system, who was running the game, players involved, characters involved. Blah, blah. We had so many campaigns ongoing all at once. It was it was nuts. <laughs> it was nuts. Fast forward to today's uh, environment uh, with family, work, kids, all that. I'm gaming once a week on Saturdays, and that is most Saturdays. Every once in a while, scheduling will get in the way. So long as the host is available, we always get together, but we don't always play role-playing games. If one person's out, we'll play a board game or battle tech or whatever, card games, whatever. But if we all can make it, it it's role-playing night. That's great. So it sounds like Saturday is kind of the magical gaming time. Yeah, for most adults. Yeah. Yeah, most adults, I think it ends up being a weekend day, like a Friday night, Saturday or a Sunday. Yeah. Although I do have more weekday games now that a lot more games happen virtually. I have a a weekly Monday game that's supposed to be a short-term campaign, but it looks like we're going to continue through the rest of this year. And then fellow gnome Jared is running a D&D campaign that I am part of every other Thursday. That's awesome. So I guess going on with that, what time would your session start? And do you give leeway for people who arrive late? My Saturday games, we start at seven. Okay. And as far as giving leeway for people who arrive late, for the most part, this is going to depend on the nature of the group. My Saturday groups, I should say, have existed in one form or another since 2004. We are all very good friends. We are all close. So if somebody is running late, usually they've let us know they're running late and when they'll be there. 
or we know something has come up. We very rarely have issues with, okay, other than one friend who has gotten much better now that we're playing virtually, um, <laughs> we very rarely have the problem of the chronic person who is late. Yeah. Um, but to be completely honest, when we were playing in person and that friend was local, I had to sit down and think about it for a moment. I'm like, okay, the fact that he is never on time and we very often tell him things start at least a half an hour before they're supposed to <laughs> just to get him there in the ballpark drives me absolutely bonkers. And I do find it very disrespectful. But at the same time, I have known this person long enough to know that this is not something that is going to change. Is my gaming with him worth dealing with that annoyance? And in the end, I decided, yes, I enjoyed gaming with him enough that I could handle the fact that if we said game time was at seven, he wasn't going to show up until 7.30 or eight. So it was like, this was a, I think it's an, in, each time you have to kind of gauge how, what is most important for you. Okay, so if it's a game where I don't necessarily know everyone, like we're just getting to know each other or the campaign is just starting and somebody is consistently a half an hour late, uh, I'm probably going to have a talk with them about it or whoever's running the game is going to have to deal with the fact. But I do I do try and be flexible because this is a hobby. This is not a job. This is not something intended to be stressful. It's finding a balance for gaming with the people you want to game with, but also respecting each other's time. Right. What about you, JT? So we start about 2 p.m., sometimes 3 p.m. if somebody knows they're going to be late. Like I said earlier, we use Discord for between session communication. So if somebody knows they're going to be late, they'll be like, hey, I can't be there until 2.30, 3, sometimes even as late as 4. We're like, cool, we'll start at whatever time everybody can make it there. Uh, and usually the host is like, hey, if you want to show up at the regular time and just hang out, feel free to do so. So we'll you know, show up at two and hang out and chit chat until three, three thirty, whatever, until, you know, the, everybody is able to, to arrive. We're all really good friends. We've known each other 20 plus years each, except for one guy that's a fairly new addition. He's quote unquote, only been in the group for like four years. <laughs> and, <laughs> only four years. <laughs> yeah. And then one of the guys that in, in the group that I've known for the 20 plus years, I held his son when his son was an infant. Aww. And that infant has now grown up and it's part of our gaming group. That's awesome. <laughs> Where was I going with all that? Right. If somebody's late and unannounced late, uh, like like we don't know they're going to be late, I start getting worried for my friend, not upset about starting the game late. Yeah. You wonder if he's in a ditch somewhere. Because we're all very punctual. So I just, you know, when somebody shows up late and doesn't tell us they're going to be late and they walk in the door, we all yell, good, you're not dead in the ditch. It's about time you showed up. Sit down, grab your dice, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so so that's the, the dead in the ditch greeting uh, that, that we give. So, so yeah, we, we have leeway for people starting late. It, it's fine. So basically, it sounds like flexibility to a point is key. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it, this is going to change depending upon how long the group has been together. Yeah. Yeah. If you have been together for a long time and know each other pretty well, there's probably going to be more flexibility and understanding there. If the group is new and just getting established, there's probably more of a concern at chronic lateness. Or if it's like at a con or something, a one-shot deal and they're late, I mean, it would be different. Conventions and one-shots are a totally different story. Yeah, cons you start on time. If somebody's late, too bad. If it's five minutes after and you're not there, I'm giving the character to somebody who's waiting. Yeah. Yes. Or we're just starting. And, and honestly, if they show up later than 20 minutes, I'm probably not letting them into the game. Yeah, because too much of the story in the background. Yeah. Yeah. So how long 
do you run your sessions for? So we go really long. Our short sessions are about four hours. Our average is about six. We'll go as far as seven, eight hours uh, per session. Oh. We tend to only stop where there's a natural breaking point in the story. Like, you know, we leave the dungeon and return to town to sell our goods. That's where we'll stop and we'll handle all the buying, selling, trading, identifying of magic items, blah, blah, blah. We handle that through Discord. Oh, okay. Uh, so, so we're not at the table, quote unquote, wasting our time, our game time, doing bookkeeping. We try to bookkeep offline as much as we can. So there you go. Oh, that's a good that's a good tip. Thank you. I try and be very flexible with the timing. For the most part, I would say sessions for my regular game days, and this is games I play and run in, are between three and five hours. Some of the weeknight games are only scheduled for about three hours. My Saturday game, we start at seven, and I try and get us wrapped up by midnight. And that's partially out of respect to the friends that are parents with jobs and all, you know, like, like adults with lives, which is pretty (laughs) much all of us. And there's some people like I am a night owl. I could play till 1am, 2am without too much problem. I know there are folks who like, once we hit that midnight point, it's pumpkin time Uh, (laughs) and they will keep going. Like last night, we actually went to about 1240 ish because we were in the middle of a combat and we were close to the end, but still needed to get stuff wrapped up. I could see which folks were starting to turn into pumpkins. <laughs> so normally I try and wrap us up by midnight. I will say for convention games, for those one shots, I usually plan for, well, here's another aspect of how long you run for. You have to factor in the social stuff. You have to factor in the distractions and the BSing and all of that. So like, yep. While I say we run from seven to midnight, we get maybe actually about three and a half to four hours of gaming in there because there's the everyone saying hi, getting reacquainted, making sure we're ready to go with characters, the break and then conversations that happen after break. And then we have to get back into gaming with convention one shots, usually like it's a four hour slot. I try and plan for the actual game to fit in a three-hour time frame. Same. That way I can have the opening where, you know, everyone gets in, chooses characters, gets settled, we have a break, and then I can finish early enough that they can get to another game without having to stress about time. Oh, that's kind. That's considerate. Yeah, but it's it's the three to five hours for my regular campaigns, and then factoring in the fact that not every second of that time frame is going to be spent actually in character, rolling dice, right. playing at the table. Right. Because as a player, I mean, I've been one of those naughty players that kind of sometimes gets off the task a little bit. And yeah, and I mean, GM t- sometimes feels like he's hurting cats. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, oh, yeah. I'm one of those cats. I admit it. <laughs> there is a high degree of cat hurting when it comes to being a GM. Yeah. And to piggyback on something Inch said, the, the, you know, hey, we haven't seen each other for a week. Let's chat for 10, 15, 20 yeah, minutes, whatever. Up. If you have an extended break, like say over the holidays, like my weekly group hasn't met for three weeks. We'll be getting back together next Saturday after a three week break. That extended break is going to extend the, hey, how's it going time? So while we get together at two, we're probably not going to start rolling dice until three. It's going to be a full hour. Yeah. For us to chit chat. I was just talking with another friend about how in 2020, when the pandemic hit and we had to switch to playing online 
versus playing in person, it's like not only did I factor in the tech time to get everyone connected and on the same page, I also factored in a larger socialization time. Oh, yeah. If we were together for five hours, we probably got maybe two and a half hours of actual gaming in. Okay. Because people right? just needed that social connection. Yeah. And I know in the you Midwest, know. we have like the Midwestern goodbye, where it takes about an hour to, to say our farewells. <laughs> so you'd have to factor that in. <laughs> kind of speaking of like pandemic and stuff, do you run your sessions in person, on Zoom, or a hybrid combination of both? Right now, most of my games are virtual. The Saturday groups, we try and get together and play in person like three to four times a year. And they're kind of like special occasion gaming. We'll still play whatever game we're currently involved in, but it's the, we have the opportunity that all of our players are in town because with the pandemic, it was like, there's no reason not to include these people that don't live in town with us anymore. So my one Saturday group has a member who lives about four hours away. And then the other Saturday group has a person who lives over in Ohio. I'm in New York. So we were just like, there's no reason not to get Scott back playing with us. Yeah. You know, we're playing virtually. He can play with us virtually. Right. But we do try and play in person when the opportunity presents. Yeah, for me, my group is 100% in person. Like I said earlier, if one person can't make it, it's board game night for us. During the pandemic, we did online. We, did, we used uh, Zoom and Fantasy Grounds. Uh, Fantasy Grounds was our virtual tabletop. Zoom was for audio audio only because my internet connection sucks because I live very remote. So trying to run Fantasy Grounds and five videos all at once just killed it. Oh, yeah. Along with my son playing his video games, my wife streaming her TV shows and all that just didn't happen. So everybody turned off video. We did audio only. And honestly, it was a miserable experience. It, it was a Band-Aid on a bleeding wound. It really didn't satisfy any of us. We still did it because... We got to hear each other's voices. And it was better than nothing. And it was better than nothing. Yeah, we, we did we did the nothing thing for two and a half, three months. The first two and a half, three months of the pandemic. And I was like, finally, I was like, okay, enough's enough. I got a game. Let's do this. And as soon as everybody was vaccinated, we were back in person. I do find that video is very important to me when playing virtually. Oh, same, I, same. I, I need to see the faces. So I can definitely understand how not being able to have the video and just focus on the, the audio diminishes the experience. Yep. I would probably wait until I had more experience DMing because you also, if you want to make it really good experience for Zoom, you need to really learn how to do the cameras and how to get on the map. And I mean, it takes some technical know-how and maneuvering to do it really well. Getting into the virtual tabletops is a whole other conversation. You have to figure out how much time you're willing to invest and what the, the VTT offers you. Yeah. Actually, we're talking about this on Thacko with Advantage in our next episode. So you'll probably listen to that episode to hear Jared and I's thoughts on various features. <laughs> no, you're right. It, there is tech skills required, for me at least, a much deeper time investment to prepare for a virtual game than an in-person game. I am finding the opposite with running my D&D game online. Oh. It is so much easier for me to prep in the VTT. Here's a map. Here's the, the things. Okay, we're good to go. Whereas if I'm running in person, I need to have my my paper with my opportunity, you know, my like, little chart to mark XP and damage, not XP, but mark the hit points off the monsters, all of my stats. I have to have the picture to show my players to be like, here's <laughs> what you're fighting because I want to have that that level of visual representation. And I, I find all of that much easier to do 
in the VTT. With running with a VTT, the more you do it, the more comfortable you get and the easier it is. At this point, with my Saturday groups playing online since March of 2020, we are all very comfortable with it. We very rarely have major technical delays. We are all very comfortable in this space, but it does take time to reach that level of comfort. Kind of do what you're comfortable with and what you prefer to do. I mean, I think right. you'll do the best job that way. I mean, don't be afraid to try new things. Sure. You know, don't be afraid to experiment with different methods, but you definitely want to find out what you are comfortable with and what makes it easiest for you to run. Definitely. You want to keep it easy button as possible, especially if you're a new time, first time DMer. Yeah. So when you play in person or even virtual, do you host at home or at another location like a bookstore, cafe, library, restaurant? Uh, we meet at a buddy's house. When there are bad die rolls, there are bad cuss words said, and libraries and such don't like that. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I, I don't want to have to censor myself or inhibit honest communication between players and game master. So I, I prefer not to play in public unless I'm explicitly at a con or running a con game or, or something along those lines, right? Uh, if it's my regular group, it's got to be somewhere private because we get loud and boisterous. You don't have to keep it PG and PC. Some of the folks in my group tend to be night owls, which is why we start at 7 p.m. and go till midnight. And not a lot of public places would support that. Most game stores are going to close by 9 or 10. Most coffee shops are gonna, they're going to close by 9 yeah. or 10. You know, like, And it's just much more comfortable to play with the regular group in somebody's house. We have several of us who will host. When we get the opportunity to play in person, um, we have been mostly playing at my friend Tristan's house because he and his wife bought a new house. He's got a great gaming space in the basement. He's working on getting set up to be awesome. We can take turns. I love hosting gaming at my house. And it's a good incentive to keep the house in pretty good condition too. Big house. <laughs> yes. If I want to make sure my house is clean, I invite somebody over. Exactly. Yep. We do the same yep, thing. Yep. Another question, what is your minimum and maximum amount of players to run your session? Or I guess in a game, in the campaign? All right. Minimum, obviously, one. Got to have somebody else. I mean, sure, there are solo games that you can play, but I find that a stretch to call that role-playing. Uh, Cinda probably horribly, you know, strongly disagrees with me because um, she's done a lot of <laughs> journaling and, and solo play games. I just don't see that being enjoyable for me. And that's, that's me, yeah. right? So one player, me and another person, uh, maximum six. I have run for 14 people before, and we didn't want to drop characters. So when a player dropped out, we added a new player. We kept the old character around. So there were 14 players and 18 characters, something like that. It, <laughs> wow. It, 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 this is high school. So it, the it 80s was, and 90s were a special time. Yeah, they, they were. were. Yes, yeah, special. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, for some definition, it's special. So, yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, these days, no more than six. And honestly, I prefer five because that gives the... GM at the head of the table, two players each on the side, and another player at the tail of the table. And you're you're not cramped around the table. You're not trying to yell across the room at somebody. So six people maximum at the table, one of which is the game master, because I'm getting old and deaf, and I don't like yelling at people. <laughs> so how about you, Ange? Um, max is six. I can run for seven or eight if I need to, but I don't like to. So if I'm going to play or run a campaign, six is my max. Okay. I will also say four is my minimum. I do not like running for less than four people. I have found that when I am running, I need those, as a GM, I need those moments 
where I can just sit back and let the players do their thing. Yeah. You know, discuss amongst each other, debate what they're going to do next, role play with each other, whatever. I need those moments. And with less than four players, you end up with a lot more intense stares at you as a GM waiting for what's going to happen next. Yeah. I have run for two. I have run for three. And it is absolutely exhausting. Yeah, I bet it is. Because also, don't you have to play NPCs as well? Oh, yeah. I have to play the NPCs in the, a six-player game as well. But the NPCs get to take a break when the players are highly engaged with each other. Yeah, for me, I need that threshold of enough players to engage with each other so that I can just kind of take that moment to sit back and regain my own energy and stuff and not have to be feeling like I have to be on point and performing every second of the game. Gotcha. Yeah. You're not kind of, it's not like pulling teeth. Right. I, I need the players to be engaged with each other. And I found that the best threshold for that is four and six, more than six players gets to be overwhelming. Yeah. Cause somebody's left out or somebody dominates or it's just not, everybody gets an equal amount of attention. It's hard to do that. So one of the things I will also say is an alternate aspect to this question is how many players in a in a, an established campaign are you willing to run for? So, for example, JT mentioned if they have one person who's out, they just switch to playing board games. With my group, we tend to be if one person is out, we'll just keep going and someone else will play their character, like run their character for combats and stuff. If we're down two players, though, then we basically don't play. So th there's like two aspects to that question. So if I have a, an established campaign with six players, with five players available, we'll keep going. With four players available, we reschedule. That's a good idea, too, because also depending on which character the players that are absent play. In our group, the character is still there. The character is still there. The character is still played through combat. Oh, okay. And I am not a lethal GM by any stretch of the imagination, so it's not like... Oh, you were out. Sorry, your character died. You know, that doesn't happen in my games. I know this was kind of talked about a little bit earlier, but do you always have a session zero meeting prior to your campaign? And would you recommend that to a new DM? Yes. If you are planning on running a campaign that's going to go at least four to six sessions or longer, you want to have a session zero. Um, you want to establish what you're looking for as a GM, have everyone on the same page making characters. I am a huge proponent of niche protection. You want to have a balanced party. You want to have something that each character can shine in. And I find you get that a lot better when everyone makes characters together. And so session zero is usually, you know, establishing what the campaign is going to be and have everyone making the characters and establishing those characters together if that's the way that campaign is going to work. What about you, JT? I'm going to reference back to 99 episodes ago to the <laughs> Gnomecast 55 Session Zero, where Ange, Matt, and myself talk for over half an hour on Session Zeros, why they're important, how to do them, all that good stuff. I agree with Ange. If you're going more than a handful of sessions, absolutely do a Session Zero. If it's a one-shot, no, because that doubles the time that you're taking to quote-unquote play the game. Yeah. There's no point. You have like a Session Zero that's like 10 minutes long, if that which is like, here's the backstory of why you're doing this one shot and off you go. So, so yeah, I'm just going to kind of short circuit this question and say, go listen to another episode. It's uh, a <laughs> Gnomecast 55 because we could talk for another half an hour 
just about session zero because Angie and I have done that before. Oh yeah, I'll definitely have to check it out. Does your campaign consist of newbies, seasoned players, or a combination of both? Honestly, it doesn't matter. Um, how you run the game and handle each individual player, that's when it starts to matter. But I don't care if you've been playing 30, 40 years. I don't care if you've been playing 30, 40 minutes. Um, I do need to have that information so that I know, oh, I can let the guy that's been playing for 30, 40 years just have free reign. He knows the rules, or in theory does. Uh, he knows how to role play. He knows how to interact with other people, blah, blah, blah. I, can, I, can, I don't need to handhold as much with the experienced player. With the very first time player, I like to have them sit next to me or next to the very experienced other experienced player at the table so that they have a mentor and a coach to, to kind of get them, get their feet wet, get them going, get things moving in the right direction. My current group is all seasoned players. I, I think the least seasoned player is Connor and he's only been role-playing for eight years and that's because he's 18. He hasn't had the life opportunity to play 20 plus, 30 plus years like the rest of us. So he just hasn't been around on this world long enough. And I love having him at the, at the at the table because he's at a point in his life where he has all the free time in the world to read and memorize the rules. So whenever I'm running the game, if I forget a rule, I can look at Connor and go, what's the rule again? And he's my rules expert. Oh, cool. <laughs> so I love having him at the table. And he's a good, he's a great role player as well. I'm not, I'm not trying to take anything away from him on that front. What about you, Ange? I think this only matters if the group is all veterans or all newbies. I do need to know that information. I need to know if I have a new player at the table. But like, if it is a mixed group, you just make sure that that new player is either near you or near an experienced player you know can help walk them through things. But as a GM, I prep differently depending upon whether I am running for my established group of folks that I have been playing with for years, or if I'm running for those newbies that I'm in introducing to D&D or role-playing games for the first time. When I compare my established Saturday group with my teens that I run D&D for, I have to give my established group a deadly encounter to have it be remotely challenging for them. Whereas with the teens, if I gave them a hard encounter, I'd probably have a TPK. Right. It's important to know what level of experience you have at your table, but mostly so it's you can adjust your expectations of what you're presenting to the players and how challenging that's actually going to be. Right. My Saturday group, those folks I've been gaming with for years, even Laura and Chris, who are on the younger side, have been gaming with us for years. Like They are solid players. We're all solid. They're very tactically minded. I can throw a deadly encounter at them and they'll wade through it. The teens, I have to be very careful. I've realized that with what I have written on the paper, I could have killed them very easily because they don't play tactically. And of course, there are people out there who will be like, well, if they're not playing tactically, then their characters die. And I'm like, no, yeah, no. but I don't I don't want to go that route. Especially with young people. Yeah, we'll just roll with the fact that their approach to a farmhouse that they knew was full of orcs was to knock on the door. <laughs> <laughs> what is your dm style are you more character driven rules based story based i guess what's your style i am definitely character driven i'm all about the story i'm all about the characters i am constantly thinking about ways to make plots that are tied to the characters those characters are the main protagonists of the story that our game is creating so i want it to be about them the rules are there is guidelines. I do try and adhere to them. I do try and have a degree of rules mastery. But for me, it's all about the characters and the story. 
totally agree. I, I, I don't have anything else to add to that. I, I <laughs> echo Angie's sentiments. Yeah, I think I would have it more character-driven as well, just because I like to write stories and exploring the character and exploring the world that the characters are in. So I guess this one's really open-ended. Any other advice for a new GM? Relax, breathe. <laughs> you are allowed to take time to stop and think. If the players blindside you with a new idea, a new approach, a new something, it's cool to say, hey guys, can I have three minutes, five minutes, ten minutes to ponder this? You do not have to have an immediate reaction. If you feel embarrassed about the fact that maybe you need that ten minutes, that's when you say, okay guys, bio break time. And everybody takes a break from the game, including you. You go off to the bathroom. You cry a little bit. No, I'm kidding. You don't cry. <laughs> you, 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 you breathe. You hide in the bathroom for 10 minutes while you think so nobody can bother you, in theory. You know, you come back out. Uh, fake wash your hands if you have to, if you didn't do anything else in there, to come on out. And then proceed with the game. I have done this. I've done this enough where one of my players is like, are you okay, man? Do you have food poisoning? And I was like, <laughs> oh, sorry. No, I just need time to think. And, and I, just be honest with your players. You know, hey, I got, I got to think about this. So breathe, relax. Uh, last bit of uh, advice is if you're having fun, you're doing it right. Oh, awesome. Who cares about the rules? Don't throw them out. I've played so many different rule systems over the years. I meshed them together in my head by accident. But if you're having fun, you're doing it right. I think my major piece of advice is going to be for your first time running, play with people you trust and who support you. Don't try and run for the first time for strangers. Don't run for the first time with friends that are. You know how you have those friends who are like, they like to rib each other? Oh, yeah. And and are always poking at each other. Eh, those are probably not the best friends to run for for the first time. You you want to run for the friends who want to see you succeed at this. Your cheerleaders, definitely. Yeah. So, like, run for people you you are friends with and that you trust. And you can be completely honest with them. This is my first time running. You know, because you'll want feedback from them at the end. But the other piece of thing I will say is just do it. It's not as hard as it seems. Yes, we've said a lot. Yes, there's a lot of nuance to running and a lot of things you can think about and it can be all very overwhelming, but it's not as hard as it looks. So just try it. And if you're doing it with people you trust and like, it shouldn't be painful. Agreed. Yeah, that, that's really that's really awesome advice. And I appreciate so much of all of your pros of wisdom today. I took a lot of notes <laughs> as I'm talking with you. So for our listeners, Lori had probably twice as many questions as were actually asked in this episode. We're probably going to do a part two very soon. So this show is funded by our GnomeSue Patreon. You too can be a Patreon backer by following the Patreon link on the GnomeSue website, the GnomeSue Patreon. This ad is brought to you by our eternal gratitude to all of the people that support GnomeSue and the content we put out. Thank you. If you are enjoying the GnomeCast, you'll probably like many of the other Misdirected Mark shows. Here's one to check out. Panda's Talking Games. Queer gamers talking about tabletop role-playing games and making outtakes. Join Pandas Phil and Sunday every Wednesday answering listener questions about playing, running, and designing TTRPGs. Get cozy. Let's talk about some games. You can find all of us at gnomestew.com, at gnomestew on Twitter, and gnomestew on Facebook. Gnomes, is there anything else you'd like to give a shout out to? All right. So I'm going to give a slight a non-RPG recommendation, but it will help your role-playing games. Um, there is a product out there called Rocketbook. I used to work in classified secured facilities, which means you were not allowed to take your Apple Watch, your smartphone, your iPad, anything with a camera or the ability to receive and transmit electronic data, not allowed in these secured areas. If you took one in, you no longer owned it. They would actually incinerate it and know you could not recover your data first. 
However, you were allowed to take pen and paper in, which I thought was kind of weird, but whatever. So I would actually have meetings in secured facilities where I did have to take notes, and I would use what's called a rocket book. And Rocketbook has an app for your iPad, your iPhone, your Android phone, your whatever, and you write out your notes. And then when you're back outside the secured facility, you can take photos of the notes with your phone using the Rocketbook app, and it converts them into an OCR PDF that is then saved to a particular file share like Dropbox or emailed to your work email address or your personal email address or whatever. And each page has a little icon on the bottom. Whatever icon you circle determines where the file lands. And you have to configure all this in your app, in your, your Rocketbook account. It's super cool because you can have like uh, notes that players can see and you write those notes out and then you scan it with your phone using the Rocketbook app and it will drop it into a particular Dropbox file share that your players have access to. And then you can have your GM only notes and you circle the appropriate icon for GM only notes, scan it and it goes into your Dropbox notes. What's really cool is the rocket books are erasable pen. You can just use one of them as water and a, and a towel to erase. The other kind, you can actually throw in the microwave and nuke it for like 20 seconds and it erases all the ink. It's kind of weird, <laughs> but it works seriously. Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. So maybe it's something to check out if you are one of those folks that likes to handwrite notes, but you still want a digital archive of your handwritten notes for later reference. One of my gaming buddies has used a rocket book for that exact purpose to take his notes and then scan them so he can later put them up digitally. It's really cool. It, it's super impressive tech. It works. I have Dr. Sloppy handwriting and somehow <laughs> their tech is like, oh, we know what this word is and actually does the optical character recognition correctly. So how about you, Ange? Do you have anything to shout out? Yeah, I want to give a shout out towards Seth Skorkowski's YouTube channel. I love his content, but I wanted to point out a particular video he recently did talking about using minis in your games. He's got a really balanced view of how and when to use them, and it's great advice for anyone kind of in the middle trying to figure out whether or not using minis are for them. We have a link in the show note to the uh, the episode and give his content a, a check. So, y'all think this episode was good enough to keep you out of the stew? Although I guess Lori has more questions, so we have to wait on that. <laughs> yeah, and Chris, I think, is going to track me down and bonk me on the head and throw me in the stew pot because we went way long. Sorry, <laughs> Sorry Chris. 